This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, after all these years, we are still busting presidential TFRs. But on the other hand, the UP Summit in Arkansas impresses. GA gives a lift to some special Olympians. Registration relief is on the way. And Scuttlebutt has ID'd a new FA administrator. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulitz. David, our guest this week, somebody you caught up with in person, actually, George Brawley, who is a. Um, Boy, he's a bit of an engineering celebrity, I guess I'd call him. The man behind Gammy Injectors and a bunch of other cool engineering projects. And most importantly for this conversation, they are running the G100UL Unleaded Fuel Project. And we're going to hear a lot more about G100 Unleaded, how it smells, what it can do for <laughs> you, <laughs> how it mixes readily with the fuel that you already have. And George was a prince. It was great to meet him. He's going to share some of his unique engineering feats with us, and I'm excited. Cool. All right. Before that, let's talk about the news. So we want to start with a reminder, I guess we will say, an event that has created a reminder, and that is that a GA pilot busted the presidential TFR. President Biden and his wife Jill were at their vacation home in Rehoboth on June 4th, and a GA pilot busted the inner ring of the TFR, requiring them to be evacuated. Scrambled the fighter jets, Ian. It was a big to-do, and it made national news. It was on CNN, as well as other networks. So, Ian, I just don't get it. After all these years, we have a lot of tools to help us with TFRs, but yet again, someone wandered through the airspace, and Rehoboth Beach is over there off the coast, of Delaware. It's not far from the coast of Maryland. You know, there's a lot of beach activity there. And Biden has been vacationing there with his family for quite some time. So it's not like it's a a new thing. But yep, there was an issue. Aircraft was immediately escorted out of the restricted airspace, as you could imagine. And the preliminary investigation uh, reveals that the pilot wasn't on the proper radio channel, was not following NOTAMs, and didn't publish the then follow the published flight guidance and the secret service as you can imagine will be quote unquote interviewing interviewing yeah the pilot <laughs> yeah so yes that that would be an interesting interview to sit through yeah so we're talking about this because really folks there is no excuse anymore there are so many tools 
available to us to find these TFRs well in advance. They're very, very infrequently pop up. Maybe during the campaign, they're a little hard to follow. Yeah, yeah. But now they're so easy to follow. So there's a bunch of resources, and we're going to go through a couple of them really quickly. I'm showing on the screen right now. These are a great reason to be AOPA members. They are our TFR alerts by email. Totally agree. Totally agree. I get When I get these in, it's so easy to see where they are. The headline above everything is in yellow and red, so it really grabs your attention. Yeah. And they're, they're graphically depicted, so it's not real hard to figure out where to not go. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice graphic. And, you know, David, you, I'm going to, you didn't know this, but I was, I had to do these way back in the day. I was doing these back in like, I think it was 2006, maybe. When you were in the pilot information center? Yep. And then back wow. up working on airspace issues to the point where we used to monitor these on a Blackberry. So I'd have to take the Blackberry home on the weekend. I used to have evenings. a Blackberry and I yeah. know exactly where you're coming from. Yep. yep. And so we'd put together the poll. And so it, it was, it's a responsibility that AOPA takes very seriously. Right. These are very important. So this is just one tool. They'll come to you through email, so you can get alerts on your phone and everything else. If you're an AOPA member. That's right. If you're an AOPA member. It'll come to you via email. That's exactly right. Yep. So other things, of course, there are the FAA TFR page. So you can always check that sort of last minute before you go. This is not as good, but it's the official source, tfr.faa.gov. You can see there's a graphic there on the screen. It's not as good as the AOPA one, as you mentioned course what else can we do man we can do pre-flight briefings for flight yes for flight garmin talk mm -hmm. to the fss you know when i went flying last week with my family we went from uh, frederick maryland all the way down to nashville and you're crossing different weather zones as well but i wanted to make sure nothing had popped up at the last minute so i did make a call right before we launched and asked if there were any tfrs or other notams uh, which is notices to air missions, not notices to air men, as CNN reported, which the Secret Service said. But we've gone over notices to air missions, the language before. But anyway, I asked him, was there anything that had popped up uh, in the last couple hours before we launched? And there wasn't, but it's always good to check because you never know if an airport closes a runway or um, say maybe another airplane had an emergency and they, and they had a flat tire and they were on the runway. And if you were intending to land there, you would definitely want Want to know ahead of time because it could affect your the amount of fuel left in your airplane, your alternates, things like that. Yeah. So real quick story, a mea culpa. This doesn't have to do with TFRs, but something that happened to me that made me a believer in always being really careful about checking notams because I wasn't as religious as I should have been at the time. But I had an IFR flight. It was an early morning. The whole East Coast was really just sort of socked in with low clouds and fog. I had planned this flight up to an airport, was going to shoot the ILS, was like, so, you know, this is going to be a perfect IFR flight. The ILS was above minimums. We were all set to go. Got, you know, to the final sector. They asked what approach I wanted. I said, I want the ILS. And they're like, yeah, it's not available. The runway's closed. Oh, my. And I felt like such an idiot because it's like if I just checked Notams, I would have known that that runway is closed, would have known that the ILS wasn't available. So thankfully, there were a couple airports nearby that I could make an approach to. But as a result, I missed a meeting. And, it, and I just felt like such a moron. And so not a really a safety issue, but just like, you know, rookie mistake. And I should have known better. So, yeah, it, it made me a believer. So check your notams. You never know when a runway or or an ILS might be out of service or a GPS approach. Because don't forget also, you know, we've written about this before. The uh, GPS system is frequently tested here, military tests. It. A lot of times there's some interference. So that really, because we rely on GPS so much, that really could affect your safety in flight. So that's yet another reason to, you know, give a quick check of the notams in case something's out. Yeah. And actually, David, that 
is a really interesting point to the next story, which is I wonder what's going to happen with Notums once a bunch of EV tolls are flying around. Yeah. So that's a very small step closer as a result of the recent Up Summit. This has been dubbed now the Davos of Mobility, held in Bentonville, Arkansas. A bunch of heavy hitters were there. And all of the top eVTOL programs, including they made some demonstration flights, which is pretty cool. Yeah, you know, the one thing to explain to our listeners and viewers here, now that we're on YouTube, is to explain what Up Partners is. It's it's a group that manages uh, quite a lot of money here, a venture capital fund, and it's helping to identify and support pioneering entrepreneurs who are creating technologies that will help move people and goods to uh, other places cleaner, faster, safer, and at lower cost in the in the air, on the ground, over the oceans, and in space. Mm-hmm. So the Up Summit was in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is starting to be a hotbed of aviation activity. There's a lot of backcountry activity that um, is generated from there. But folks at the Up Summit, they did see a lot of new technology. We had a, a flight by Beta. They flew in from uh, from the East Coast in this yeah, uh, eVTOL. Yeah. And Jim, yeah. Jim Moore has written a little bit about beta technology and the folks there. This is some fascinating stuff. It's just opening the door to what's yet to come. Yeah, that's right. So one thing you got to go online and see the video is it is incredibly quiet, this thing. And so that's you and I have talked a lot about noise and that being one of the concerns for eVTOLs. And this thing just shows how quiet they can be. Others, you know, the Volocopter, I think the four-seater was there. They announced that they've flown it. So lots of progress at the meeting. And so it's a way for people to come together, to collaborate. Tom Haynes, who covered it for us, said it's more maybe TED Talk than Shark Tank. So it's not necessarily a competitive environment. I think it's people looking for funding. Sort of of getting everyone psyched up for it. And Ian, Ian, you've written about some of this technology from way back. It's not just about electric. Don't forget, there's hydrogen technology, which I know you wrote some of the early stories about that and can help explain that to us as well. But there's the interesting... <laughs> I don't um, know about that. <laughs> well, at least so you, you covered it a little bit. It's more than I yeah. did. But um, to me, it's very inter- interesting that uh, Joby Aviation, another one of these companies we've heard a lot about in vertical takeoff in the landing world, they secretly acquired the German hydrogen aircraft startup called H2 Fly. And so it kind of makes me wonder what's on the horizon, pun intended, for things like that, hydrogen seems to be a big buzzword as well as electronic technology, lithium battery technology. But there's only so much you can do with that power to weight ratio. So there, that's why other sources are being considered. Yeah, and that's one reason that hydrogen is more interesting because it has that reduction in emissions, but maybe more efficient than battery technology. You don't have to carry as much weight theoretically. But of course, there's all sorts of other issues with the tank safety and you know fueling infrastructure and everything else. So lots of stuff to work out. But this is very cool. And one thing that's, I think, important to talk about with the Up Summit and Up Partners is there's lots of non-aviation companies, startup companies, automakers, others that have come into this space, and I think make makes pilots a little bit sort of leery of, of what's going on there. But the summit is run by two pilots, two longtime pilots, Cyrus Sagari and Ben Marcus, their partners and up partners. And they have the chops here. I mean, they know aviation, they know flying, they know the technology, they they're the real deal. And so I, I think that lends a lot of credibility from the aviation side to these eVTOLs. Mm-hmm. And folks that were in attendance also included former FAA administrators Marion Blakely and Stephen Dixon. 
So that was interesting, too. And Arkansas Governor William Hutchinson was there, and he's vowed to make Arkansas the next hotbed of aviation activity. And I think that they're going a long way towards that. Yeah, that's right. Um, David, I want to talk about the Special Olympics airlift. This is a really cool event that happens every four years to coincide with the Special Olympics. And basically what happens is the Special Olympians, the transportation was a, a big barrier to Special Olympians coming to the Special Olympics for many years. Textron Aviation, previously Cessna, was a big supporter of this and banded together a bunch of owners to come together, donate their time, their fuel to bring the Olympians to the games, and you and Julie Walker were in attendance and part of this and documented it. Yeah, it was quite the feat. You know, I want to explain to people what the Special Olympics is. This is for athletes who have intellectual disabilities, and it's been going on for quite some time. It was founded in 1968, and so it's been going on ever since then, and it's to give folks with those intellectual inabilities a chance to showcase their physical talents. And so even though they have some challenges, they're still able to compete. And boy, it is just, if you've never seen anything like this, it is just heartwarming to see the amount of faith that is put into not just the athletes and their performances, but to everyone that's volunteering. It really makes you feel good. It makes you feel great about aviation because this is one of those things where people donate their time, their energy, and their resources and financial funds to help get these athletes around the country. They're held every four years. It was in Orlando this time. We're at Orlando Executive Airport. 120 aircraft and pilots donated their time and fuel. And this is for thousands of athletes. So we gave a ride back from Florida to Trenton, New Jersey, for Brian Byrne, and he competed as a power lifter. He was with Coach Amanda Bendorf, and Brian competed and won a gold medal for power lifting. Awesome. We we're so proud of him. He was great. Earlier in the games, we took Alexa Aiken down from New Jersey down to Orlando. And, and the athletes competed for about a weekend. They also did some fun stuff. They got to tour the Disney area, things like that. And it was just great for them. There's a lot of opportunity for folks like this. We just have to remember they need a little bit of a push. And once they get that, they're able to re represent us and do well. They are singularly focused on competing and they are nice folks. Yeah, that's so cool. It's a neat event. I've been there. I've been at one of the points, actually, it turned out it was in Trenton. I think it was, boy, it's either four or eight years ago. And boy, the positivity, everybody comes out to the airport to wish them well. And it's a, it's just a really, really neat environment, really cool place to be. And so, well, like you said, I think it was like 120 airplanes participated. And so tons of Cessna owners around the country pitched in and just a just a great event and we're happy to be a part of it so very cool stuff so mark your calendar for four years from now yeah. folks who have uh, bigger airplanes really we're looking at the turboprops in the jet world so mm -hmm. things like that but you know uh, we can always use some more help uh, folks volunteering to help shuttle athletes around on the ground and there's just a little bit of a, of a kiss and tell send-off is pretty neat you know and it was just great there's a lot of a lot of heart going into that Ian it was great to be part of it and we'll be right back. Okay, David, want to talk a little bit about, this is a good news story. Finally. Registration, yeah, registration renewals. So if you haven't purchased an airplane recently or tried to renew your aircraft registration, you probably aren't even aware that this is going on. But if you have, you have probably felt the pain. And so as a result of a number of factors, we'll say staffing issues at FAA, the huge amount of aircraft transactions that are going on, 
they have become, FAA and Oak City has gotten way behind on aircraft registrations. Basically, it's supposed to be 90 days, right? Your aircraft registration is supposed to be your permanent. You're supposed to get within 90 days. And it's just not happening. It's taken six months in cases. That's right. They were running six months behind. So the FAA agreed to begin issuing uh, new aircraft owners what they're calling a preemptive extension to the 90-day temporary registrations. And the, like you just mentioned, Ian, the backlog had been uh, six months or more. And let's just go over what you need in your aircraft when we're doing our pre-flight. Everyone knows about an arrow, you know, the arrow document check. So you and I were talking about this a minute ago. We say it, let's mean what we say. You need your airworthiness. You need your registration. You need your radio license if applicable. And you need your operating limitations and your weight and balances. So the registration part of that is where we've been having the holdup. So it looks like there is some light at the end of the tunnel here. New owners of previously registered aircraft have been running out of time on those 90-day temporary registrations. But they don't have to really do anything because this is going to sort of be an automatic email that they get. And it's going to extend that time so they can be legal with those new aircraft, at which you are now part of an ownership group. And I, of course, have been looking and I really didn't think about the registration being a holdup. Uh, but to be legal, you do want to be in, in, you, know, in, you want to fly in accordance with those arrow documents for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's you can imagine it's like the day that that thing expires. You are even though you really own the airplane, you've paid for the registration, you've sent the documents into FAA. In many cases, they're not even looking at them until that past ninety days, and so you're you're out of luck. I mean, you are grounded. So this is a, a big deal for a lot of folks. AOP has been working hard on this the past couple of months, and was able to work with FAA to to get this automatic extension. And one of the things I love that the quote from from AOPA is that it's like, this should have been in place. Like this should have been something oh, yeah. that they just did. Automatic, sure. Yes, but didn't. And so this is one of the reasons, one of the things AOPA does behind the scenes and and will have a really positive impact for owners. And so we feel really good about this. And and I think many people are going to be happy to, happy to hear this. Well, one other reason to be an AOPA member is to have folks yeah, right. fighting behind the scenes for you. Yeah. And just to reiterate, the the information, the printout will come via email. You will need to print this out yourself and carry the document with you in the aircraft. Usually there's a clear pouch for that kind of thing. And don't forget to print it and carry it with you. But it doesn't apply to new aircraft. I think new aircraft purchased from a manufacturer or registration renewals. That's stuff that you probably don't need to worry about because that'll come a different way. But if you are buying or, I guess not selling, but if you're buying an older aircraft, which the market is just hot, 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 then you do need to keep an eye out for the registration. Don't forget to print it out and carry it with you as part of the Aero documents. Yeah. So David, speaking of FAA, we know that the FAA administrator announced his resignation. They've been looking for a new one. And now it's not official yet, but the scuttlebutt has ID'd the new candidate. His name is Philip Washington. He is the CEO of Denver International Airport. It's been there for a little bit less than a year. Yeah, and uh, AvWeb had a story on this, so we want to give props to them. They broke the story, but also the Denver Post had something to say about it because Bill Washington was serving as the CEO of Denver International Airport, and that position uh, was held since about July 12th of last year, and that was his first aviation role. So he's moving into a higher-profile role, 
but he does have a lot of uh, chops, shall we say, in the transportation market in this segment. And he was also involved in the Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transportation Authority called Metro. And like we said, the CEO of Denver Regional Transportation District. So uh, an, Army, an Army veteran for 24 years, a bachelor's degree in business, et cetera, manage, uh, master's in management. So he's got some background on how to make things happen, how to talk to people. Yeah, he's got the chops. Professional manager, yeah. He might not be a pilot but yet, but we want to make him one, of course. Right. And I mean, to me, the FAA, it's like if you're going to have the FAA, you need to be obviously passionate about the mission. You know, he's, he's in transportation. And you got to be a good manager. You got to know how to manage right. the people and you got to know how to work with Congress and, and work with the administration. And that's all that's important. So, and he seems to have all that. Speaking of working with Congress and the administration yes. and working with the FAA, our guest. Yeah. George Brawley, he's, he's having his challenges with that, isn't he? A lot of people rooting for him and rooting for 100 UL to be approved as quickly as possible. They are working with the Eagle Initiative and AOPA and others. So, we're definitely working through those processes as quickly as possible, and uh, we're going to hear what he has to say about it. So, 10 years you've been working on this. What goes what kind of research and development goes on to develop an unleaded fuel? So it's actually more than 10 years, unfortunately. We started this project actually at AOPA in 2009. Uh, we were down in Florida, and it was right after we'd had a change in administration and the Obama administration was in, and the EPA was getting very active on the lead uh, pollution thing. And there was a lot of conversation, noise, concern among the pilot community at the at that AOPA convention in Florida. So as Tim and I were flying back to Oklahoma, I said to Tim, I said, you know, Tim, we've done a bunch of detonation testing, and we've tested some unleaded candidate fuels for several large petroleum producers from different places, not only in the United States, but outside the United States. I said, we know a little bit about this. We've got a test stand. I said, why don't we take a shot at trying to develop our own fuel? And so that was like October, maybe early November, whatever. You know, you can look back in the record and see when it was. Well, by mid-December, we had actually put together some fuel formulations that looked like they were promising, and we went ahead and filed a STC application. So the thing started in December of 2009 with the FAA. Unfortunately, it's taken way too long and we had the fuel basically tested and ready to go by six years ago but in the meantime the FAA started the PAFI program there were a lot of oh got to pick words carefully there were a lot of people involved at very high levels within the PAFI program and outside it that absolutely did not want a fuel that was developed by a private enterprise to be a fuel that succeeded and they managed to delay the further final progress with the fuel for a very long time. Fortunately, Mark Baker, God bless him. <laughs> I had uh, had a friend get in touch with Mark 
and Mark agreed to meet me at the Tarkio Air Show. So we met uh, in the bar there above the big hangar at the Tarkio Airfield Friday night, and Mark agreed to meet me for breakfast for a one-hour breakfast meeting the next morning. And it was to talk about the fuel. Well, that one-hour breakfast meeting with Mark turned into a three-hour breakfast meeting uh, as we briefed him on where we were on the fuel. And at the end of it, he asked me you know, what I needed, and I said, somebody needs to talk to Air One and the FAA and get them to look at this project and to remove the artificial roadblocks that are being put in our way. And so he said, all right. He said, let me take a shot at that. Ten days later, I got a phone call out of the clear blue from Earl Lawrence, Air One, then, you know, sits in the corner office at 800 Independence Avenue. His predecessor was Dorinda Baker, who had been there for a number of years. And I, I'll never forget the conversation. Almost the first words out of Earl Lawrence's mouth was, George, I've looked at this project, the file, this project's taken at least five years too long, and there's been way too much high-level regulatory interference and not near enough uh, uh, certification activity. I'm going to suggest that the people that are working on the project, they're going to be reassigned to go do something or something somehow someplace else, and I'm going to put a whole new team in charge of the project. And that worried me because I knew how big the file was. I mean, the file will fill this whole room up with boxes of documents. And I said, well, it's going to take somebody else forever. And he said, well, it's the right way to do it. Just trust me. I said, okay. And a week later, I get a phone call from a whole new team at the Wichita Aircraft Certification Office. And they got put in charge of the project, and we went to work. And that was the summer of 20. And in July of 21 at Oshkosh, Earl Lawrence announced for the first time ever that uh, the FAA had issued a supplemental type certificate for a high-octane unleaded aviation gasoline. And that never been done before. And the idea was to take the initial small number of engines and aircraft that were on the model list or the approved model list that went with the STCs and to expand that until we had every single spark ignition piston engine included on that list. When they, when they sign the STC, what's between that and me filling up my airplane with the new fuel? Time logistics. You know, I mean, one of the standard complaints is, well, this is a little company in southeastern Oklahoma. You know, how are they going to build a refinery and produce this fuel? Well, it's just complete and utter total nonsense. That's, those are comments that are being made by people that are trying to further love the problem instead of fix the problem. As you saw out there, I mean, this fuel is not hard to make. I could splash blend 10,000 gallons on the ramp at this airport. Any competent refiner or even a large blending facility can make this fuel. It does require some, you know, organization and logistics. And, you know, if you've been to Long Beach and looked out across the harbor at Long Beach lately, you realize that the supply chain uh, crisis is still with us. Right. And that's probably going to slow it down some. But, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. You, you can't produce the fuel till you've got the signed document from the FAA because nobody can use it legally until that happens. So we've got to, we've got to get that done first. And we have been in very serious discussions with people that are fully competent to produce all of 
the necessary high-octane unleaded aid gas that it takes to satisfy the entire fleet. Uh, but they can't go to work. They can't even start creating budgets within their own organization to go do that and fund that uh, until they've got the piece of paper that they can go to their board of directors and say, okay, this is done, as opposed to uh, maybe in two weeks or maybe in two months it'll be done. So uh, right now, you know, if you had to point your finger someplace, it's Washington FAA headquarters. Right. Is the only, is the only roadblock. It's not the certification effort. The engineers that have done the work say that not only have all the work been done and been done properly, but that as a matter of law, we're entitled to receive the certificates. But their hands are tied behind their back by instructions from the corner office at 800 Independence Avenue in Washington, D.C. So you have been in negotiations with refiners. So once you get that signature, someone is going to be able to move ahead with this. Yes. So is it Now, are you going to work in partnership with them, or what? how are you going to handle it? So you may be aware that several years ago, we entered into an agreement with Avfuel, based out of Michigan, a company owned by Craig Sincock, and they're going to manage the logistics and the distribution. Our agreement with Avfuel is that any emphasis, any qualified refiner or blender that wants to make this fuel is that they will be allowed to receive a license and they can make the fuel. So it's not a question of somebody trying to have a monopoly on who produces the fuel or anything like that. One of the beauties of this is if you if you talk to people from the PAFI program and people that frankly are ignorant of the subject matter and really don't know what they're talking about, they'll raise all kinds of, uh, of kind of false flag objections, things like, well, you know, who's going to manage quality control? Nobody's going to have any knowledge of this. This is this has all been done in secret. Uh, there's no transparency. I mean, these are standard talking points from various different industry groups that only want to see this done through some giant consensus process. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is that right now, today, if you ask a senior person in the FAA, what oversight over quality of fuel does the FAA have for gas or jet fuel? Simple question. The right question. And when you ask them that question, they'll usually sit there and look down at their feet and move their foot around and shuffle a little bit and squirm a little bit. And finally, they'll admit that the FAA has absolutely no input to quality assurance for any uh, fuel that goes in any aircraft. Well, we've turned that table around and the documents that we have that are already signed and approved by the FAA uh, create a process through through GAMI, uh, we are, in the FAA technical language, we are something called a production approval holder. We have a quality assurance manual that's been approved by the FAA for our manufacturing. You guys have seen some of the work that we do around here. It's pretty exceptional. And so with that, when we issue a license to a refiner or blender to make this fuel, as part of that agreement, we have the right to inspect their books and records, to make surprise inspections at their uh, production facilities, to check the quality of the fuel, and if we deem it necessary, or if the FAA makes a request, we have the right to bring a representative from the FAA with us to do that, and they have a chance to observe and, and see that. So 
that provides a direct involvement of the FAA in making sure that the quality of the fuel is what it is supposed to be. And that presently, that does not exist with anybody's gasoline they put in the wings of their airplane. It's really hard for somebody on the outside to even begin to appreciate the level of malicious interference with the certification process that's gone on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had uh, efforts by at least one of the major oil companies to try and interfere and stop this project. I can only describe it as a malicious effort. And that's gone on off and on multiple times. And there's been other malicious interference, unfortunately, from a couple of people inside the FAA. Mm. Fortunately, we were able to get that dealt with by higher level management. But sometimes it cost us a year or more and and wasted time and effort. Sure. Say we got the approval tomorrow. Mm -hmm. When, how long do you estimate and... It's just an estimate yeah. of getting the infrastructure in place and getting this out on the market. Well, look, it's not going to happen overnight. Okay. But it occurs to me that the logical way to do this, and frankly, what's the right word? The righteous way to do this. Uh, we've got airports in California that can't sell a high-octane unleaded aid gas. Uh, they can't sell a high-octane gasoline of any kind right now. And it seems to me like that it would be appropriate to try and get fuel on those airports as an initial uh, rollout and then let it spread to the rest of the country. I mean, my phone rings several times a week from somebody typically west of the Sierra Nevada that has a crisis going on at their airport out there. But it's not just California. I mean, uh, I've been directly contacted by Westchester County in New York about the same issue. And they're willing to actually spend money out of their budget to put extra tanks in if they need to. Fortunately, they really don't need to because this fuel is completely mixable or interchangeable, or the fancy word for that is fungible, with existing 100 low lead. So there's no reason for there to have to be extra infrastructure to handle this transition. Let me give you an example. An FBO has got one of those big 10,000 gallon tanks that he's selling 100 low lead out of. Let's say he burns it down where there's 1,500 gallons of 100 low lead left. He says, okay, I need to switch over to this unleaded fuel. My my, uh, airport commission is giving me a hard time about lead. I need to get rid of the lead. So he picks up the phone. He calls someplace that's got G100 and says, can you send me a transport truck with G100 ULA gas? I said, sure. So a few days later, it shows up at his airport, and it's a standard transport truck. It's got 8,000 gallons on board, and it... What's it going to do with the fuel? Going to dump the 8,000 gallons on top of the 1,500 gallons that's already in the tank of 100 low lead. And now he's got 9,500 gallons of fuel in that tank. We anticipated exactly that scenario 12 years ago, 11 years, 10 years ago. And when we wrote this specification that's been approved by the FAA, we put a provision in there that mixing G100UL, ape gas, with conforming ASTM D910-100 low lead results in a mixture of fuel that continues to conform to the G100UL specification. Therefore, even though it's a mixture of, of two fuels, it is a fuel chemistry that conforms to an approved specification. That means it's not hazmat. There's a specification that tells you what it is and tells you that it's okay to use in an airplane. And they can therefore take that 
9,500 gallons that's in that tank, and they can start put, putting it in the wings of the airplanes that are uh, have the STCs and ready to uh, to use the 100 uh, high octane un unleaded APS. It's wonderful, George. <laughs> it's a wonderful prospect. Quite candidly, a great deal of thought went into the transition period, uh, you know, and that part of the of the whole process way back at the beginning to try and make that so that it was practical to be able to do that. So, David, one thing I love about George is, you know, he looks like Santa Claus, and hopefully he's giving gifts to all aircraft owners. Well, he might. The jury is still out on that, yeah. Ian. Yeah. You know, we hope, we hope that there will be a solution that is equitable for all aircraft owners and all engines, and that's one thing that you and I have talked about before, which is, you know, we're for whatever works for everybody. Yes. Yeah, and they are certainly evil geniuses down there in Ada, Oklahoma, aren't they? It's incredible the stuff they've come up with, a diverse yeah. range of products and services. And, and uh, obviously, we're all Lean of Peak fans because of Gammy Injectors and, and George and Mike Bush. Gammy yeah. Fuel Injector, that Tornado Alley yes. Turbo. turbo and that was uh, that yeah. was something that, right, that beefed up uh, Bonanzas and the early Cirrus, Cirrus yep. models, too. Yep. And so that really gave those airplanes a, almost a coast-to-coast -coast ability, depending on how much fuel they will hold. It is impressive what is going on at that facility. And you're right, evil geniuses, maybe. Yeah. There are some smart people working there. The engine test bed that George had. And, you know, I got to smell that aviation fuel, and it's a little bit sweeter hmm. than, uh, than and, you know, 100 AV gas that we know of today. But uh, in a different color, too, as we saw. So very cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us via the podcast at aopa.org slash hangar talk. And Ian, they can get us on YouTube now, too. What's that link? So that is the AOPA Live channel on YouTube. And there is a hangar talk upload video roll up. So take a look for that and you'll catch all the episodes. Ian, let's see you next time. Thanks for being here with me on Hangar Talk. All right. We'll see you next time, David. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.